Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And hey, I'm the show. And today we bring you another installment of Da Bomb, the best of microbiology. And we have a lot to share with you today, including a new giant microbe, some wine news, what role fire plays in helping microbes get around, how bacteria can evade the immune system, and a sustainability superpower of Pseudomonas. All right, let's get started. John, can you tell us about this new microbe? All right. So this comes from an article called The Largest Bacterium Ever Discovered Has an Unexpectedly Complex Cell. The title of the main article is A Centimeter-Long Bacterium with DNA Compartmentalized in Membrane-Bound Organelles from Volan et al. It's a centimeter? More, actually. Wow. That's ginormous. So there's a new bacteria that's found in rotting leaves of the Caribbean mangroves, and it can be seen by the naked eye and can grow up to two centimeters long, and it has a genome encased in a membrane instead of free-floating. So this is opposite from what we've all learned in science, right? Like bacteria have free-floating DNA in their cytoplasm, not encapsulated in a membrane like eukaryotes do. And some say it may be the missing link in evolution of complex cells. This bacteria was first discovered 10 years ago, but it was only classified as a bacteria five years ago. And recently, a graduate student, Jean Voland, in the lab of Oliver Gross decided to study it. The bacteria contains two membrane sacs, one containing the DNA and one that is filled with water, which may be the reason why the bacteria can survive. What does the water have to do with survival? I will tell you actually in a second. Okay. So this is an oversimplification. So essential compounds for bacteria can diffuse in and out of the cell due to its size. While bigger cells really need organelles to ship compounds across the cell in order to live. So this water-filled sac encompasses 73% of the cell, and they believe that it pushes all the other contents within the cell to the edge of the cell. And by doing that, the diffusion of nutrients can occur, and the bacteria can survive. And the proposed name that they made for this bacteria is Theo Margarita Magnifica. A magnificent margarita. That yep. sounds pretty good. I can get behind <laughs> that name. And the largest cell that they found was two centimeters in length. But they also believe that if it's not tampered with, the bacteria can grow even longer. The genome is also huge. So the typical bacterial genome is between four to five million base pairs, while Theo Margarita Magnifica is 11 million base pairs. Wow. So it's over twice the size as a normal bacterial genome. Yep. And it has over a thousand, no, over 11,000 functional genes, which is almost three times more than genes of the average bacteria. Damn. Not only that, but the ribosomes of the bacteria were found in the sac containing the DNA instead of the cytoplasm. Wait, wait, say that again? The ribosomes. Uh-huh. They were found in the same membrane as the DNA that was encapsulated. What? Yeah. Weird. So they theorized that this makes the bacteria more efficient at making proteins. All that's happening in the membrane, and then it goes out into the cytoplasm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And they don't go really into much more about it. It's just characterizing the bacteria. But I thought that was really cool. And on science, 
the summary that they give, they also have a video and they have a penny and you can see the little bacteria floating next to the penny for comparison. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'll have to go check that out. Yeah. So this bacteria is longer than a fruit fly. Wow. At its longest. It's amazing that it can be seen with the naked eye and yet no one's ever seen it with the naked eye except in the last decade. Right. Where was it found? They found it originally in the decomposing uh, Caribbean mangrove leaves. Okay. In a swamp, swampy area. So not a place that many people go to, but still. Right. So I guess there is one other bacteria that's kind of similar, but it has it's not as long, and that membrane sac contains like sulfur type products. So it's an extremophile. I think so. More closely related to that. So they're wondering if this really bridges the gap between bacterial and eukaryotic. It'd be cool if this was a leftover from millions of years ago, even billions of years ago, evolutionary speaking, because I know there are some bacteria that almost have not evolved just by due to their ability to repair their own DNA. They've kind of halted their own evolution. So is this something that hasn't evolved that much and is, you know, that gap that they were talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it does seem to have some bacterial or some prokaryotic and some eukaryotic traits so it could be it would be interesting also if they can find it at in other mangrove sites apart from the one there where they discovered it yeah i wonder if they've started looking in any of those other areas yeah but that's that's just one of those environments that is largely unknown i think at this point Mm -hmm. so who knows what treasures are hidden there i mean swamps can hold a, a vast ecological system And we've only really scratched the surface of a lot of ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. I have nothing else to really add to that little uh, story, but I just really liked that. I was like, wait, I can see a bacteria? That doesn't make sense (laughs) at all. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yes, it would be interesting how the story turns out in the future. So I have a paper on improving the wine with a cocktail of microbes. Mm, Love it already. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the paper was published in 2020, actually. This is from Montpellier. The the researchers were from Montpellier and they decided to look into the microbial interactions uh, when the process of fermentation is going on uh, for a wine. Why did they start the study? They, They started it because they wanted to see just the microbial interactions but not the optical mixes so far how the wine is made is uh, based upon uh, the amount of bacteria uh, the amount of uh, yeast that you put inside Uh, and then there are several kinds of yeast there and there are some optical mixes which people try out for the different flavors uh, smoky nutty and uh, the texture as well Uh, but this this observation of what kind of optimal mix to use was mostly based on the final product and there was no real research done until now Um, and in this paper they actually tried to find out what kind of optimal mixes could actually improve the properties of a wine by studying the microbial interactions so what they did was they took monocultures of the yeast and then mixes of the yeast. And then they compared uh, what was the changes in the different metabolites detected, how much ethanol was produced, um, how much glycerol was produced, and how much sugar was left after the process of fermentation was complete. Um, Of course, they found that 
the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the most common yeast used to produce wine, actually used all of the sugar within around 200 hours since the fermentation started. But they did not find the same condition for other monocultures, which did not involve the, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. In fact, they found that within 200 hours, most of the sugar was left unfermented. It, the, the percentage was different for different species that they tried out. But when they uh, saw it in the mixture of cultures, uh, the result, the amount of sugar left was similar to the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And this is an interesting observation because this means that in the mix of cultures, even though they started with equivalent mixes of different species of yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae took over all of them and most of the properties left at the end were because of that particular yeast and not the others. Uh, eventually, the flavor profile improved, definitely, and that was the main readout, actually. Uh, and I find it quite interesting. The authors suggest that they did not test out an exhaustive list of yeast, so they are not really sure if the findings that they uh, observe would be repeated in a different set of mixes. But they think uh, that if we increase the amount of uh, non-saccharomyces, East, then the flavor profile would be entirely different. Plus, in the mix of cultures, they found that the amount of glycerol was more than the monocultures. Uh, glycerol actually improves the uh, texture of the wine. It makes it more smooth. And if the mix of cultures is producing more glycerol, that means then you could actually modify the concentrations of different yeast uh, used in that mix and then improve the texture as well. That's so interesting. So how do you know how many yeast they used? How many different kinds of yeast? Uh, they used five types. And only one of them was a Saccharomyces cerevisiae strain? Yes, exactly. And the others are a complex set of names, which I can try and pronounce here. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not necessary. But yeah, that's... that's um. I think wine is one of those things humans are always after to improve, but also always saying that it can never be improved anymore. So I am curious, uh, did they tamper with the temperature that they were fermenting with? Um, no, actually, they didn't. They started with, yes, I, I don't remember reading about the temperature, but I think the only experiment that they did was at a constant temperature and they didn't modify it. Um, of course, they stopped the monocultures of non-saccharomyces service strains, even after 200 hours, they were sure that the fermentation would process would be complete maybe within 400 or 500 hours for the other strains, but they didn't continue with it. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious of what different temperatures would do to it because through brewing, I found that different yeast strains react differently with different temperatures. Like uh, they'll have a preferable temperature range and if they go outside that range, they start uh, making off flavors. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if they try to continue this, and I think they would be, <laughs> it's such an interesting <laughs> topic. Yeah, I wonder if they got to taste all the wine at the end too. Yes, I was Seems wondering like one of those the same. Although they use a synthetic medium, uh, which tasted, which mimicked the grape juice, uh, not exactly the grape, but I still think that if I was doing this research, I would, I mean, I would be, I'd be curious, yes. right? 
every day after the experiment you don't need to buy the wine you can just taste your own experiment. take it home <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so we'll move on to article number three so this one is about uh wildland fires so this was a article that was published january 25th of 2022 um so it's a very recent article it's called Wildland Fire Smoke Alters the Composition, Diversity, and Potential Atmospheric Function of Microbial Life in the Aerobiome, which is a fun word. So this article was published in ISMI Communications, which is a very good journal, by Lita N. Cobzier, David Viono, Rachel Moore, Brent C. Krishner, Timothy Dean, Boris Betchencourt, Adam C. Watts, and Johanna Errol, and Brian Gullett. I apologize for mispronouncing anybody's name. Uh, names are challenging. I'm much better with microbial names than I am with human names, I gotta say. I'm just terrible at both. Yeah, both hard. <laughs> so this is actually a, a pretty big collaboration from people across uh, America and included researchers from Idaho, Colorado, Florida, North Carolina, Washington, Ohio, and Georgia. So you're really kind of hitting every single section of America, which is kind of cool. But they primarily focused on wildfires of the West of the United States, where wildfires have been a really big problem in the past and will continue to be a problem in the future as we see climate change continue to um, cause a lot of problems. So they wanted to look at the aerosols above high-intensity forest fires in the Western United States. And in case you're unaware, fires are a huge and growing problem around the world, especially in the Western U.S., like California. Um, but I know we've all also know about the Australian fires that happened a few years back in 2020, I think. And California also saw a lot of really big fires in 2020. In fact, of their 10 largest fires on record, five of them occurred in the horrific year of 2020. And um, this is going to continue happening, according to NASA and scientists all around the world. So this is something that is a growing problem. But I think most of us are often thinking of fires as, you know, burning land and destroying structures, causing fatalities, which are all very catastrophic and terrible. But they may also be transporting microbes to areas they do not belong, which is kind of this unseen terror of these climate changes is having these storms or having these weather disperse microbes into new areas where they can cause uh, problems. So they obviously fires are creating smoke, they're creating the pollution that we are all not very big fans of, but also the smoke can be carried across the country, causing pollution issues and dispersing of the microbes. While many of these microbes may be freeloaders, and we probably don't have to care about them. There are probably a lot of microbes in there that are pathogens to either plants or animals. So this can destroy crops, this can destroy agriculture, uh, and it may even start spreading diseases to humanity as well. So they wanted to know, they had a couple questions that they were interested in in this particular study. They wanted to know, how does smoke contribute to the diversity of atmospheric microbial aerosols? What are the unique characteristics of the microbial fingerprint emitted during forest fires? And does the smoke contain certain groups of microbes that correlate to ice nucleation particle concentration? And if you're confused what microbes have to do with ice formation, we do have a blog on our website on Microbigals called Walking in a Winter Wonderland, where we talk about Pseudomonas syringae and its ice nucleation powers and its ability to cause... Um, 
to be a pathogen to crops when there really wasn't that pathogen before a certain storm. So to collect the data, uh, I think this is kind of cool, so I wanted to share it. They had an unmanned aircraft as their collector. Uh, it basically th flew over these areas in the U.S. and vacuumed up air. Uh, they had a microscope to count the number of cells, so they were interested in both looking at the DNA composition that was in the smoke, but also looking at the viability of the cells or how many living cells they found in the vacuumed air that they had. And then, of course, they also needed to look at the ice nucleation particles. So it wasn't just bioinformatics pipeline. It wasn't just understanding the microbiome, but kind of collecting some of this other data as well. So the microbial diversity analysis of the study uh, was actually accomplished using the 16S, ITS, and 18S targeted sequencing services from our sponsor, Zymo Research. Zymo's microbiome sequencing services offer industry-leading taxonomic precision, comprehensive bioinformatic analysis, and quick turnaround time. So you can check out uh, Zymo's targeted and shotgun metagenomic sequencing services at ZymoResearch.com. And then they, after they did the Zymo pipeline, they went through the Data2 pipeline, um, which is one of my favorite pipelines. I use it all the time. So thanks, Ben Callahan, for that pipeline and giving that to the world. It's amazing. So they had uh, smoke samples that contained four times as many cells as smoke-free air. So they did find that the smoked air is containing a lot more microbes than air that has not been in fire situations. And they also concluded that 78% of these cells were still alive. So it's not just taking up dead cells or taking up DNA into its air pockets. It's actually collecting living cells and transporting it to new areas. The smoke clouds were more diverse uh, in both bacteria and fungi than the background air. And when they measured ambient air, they found on average 69% uh, were viable. So a lot fewer microbes are living in viable air than in the air that they collected from the fires. And so the, what they kind of estimate is that in these smoke clouds, there's about 3.71 times 10 to the 14th microbial cells per hectare are emitted by these fires, which is a really big number. Um, to put it into a little bit of perspective, the human body is estimated to have about 39 trillion microbial cells, um, which is only uh, 10 to the 12th. So we're talking two orders of magnitude bigger than, the human, than a single human microbiome is being collected in the smoke clouds per hectare. So a lot of the microbes that they found uh, were microbes I often find in agricultural settings. These include actinobacteria, bacteroidetes, chloroflexiae, plantomycetes, acidobacteria, delta proteobacteria, and also archaea were found in the smoke, but not in the ambient air, the archaea specifically. So I think this is sort of interesting that they're finding a lot of these plant-associated microbes in the air. It makes sense because these smoke clouds are going to be taking up from the fire, which is in the forest with the plants. Um, but then they are going to be transporting these microbes to new locations, and they may potentially be pathogens. So regarding the ice nucleation question that they had, they found that the microbial groups chloroplastida and nucleomycea were positively correlated with ice nucleation particles. So you're able to draw certain microbes as being associated with this group. And in the end, authors have shown that smoke is a viable source of microbial dispersion, which I think is really cool, but also a little scary as wildfires continue to increase. 
I think it's really cool. I wonder, like, does the soot from the fire, like, allow the microbes to adhere to that and allow them to be passed on further? It could be. That's a that's a pretty good theory. Yeah, they're just able to latch on a little bit. Yeah, I found it interesting that there are more viable cells when this is coming from a very hot environment. You would think they would all kind of burn and die. Right, yeah. Fire, most microbes, I could see more fungi surviving just because of the spore formation. But yeah, it's it's really interesting that you see still this higher viability as opposed to uh, ambient air. Yeah, right. I'm also trying to imagine what the airplane looks like collecting it. I, I'm kind of in my head of like a vacuum tube coming out of the end of it. A very cartoon version, yeah. I mean, I imagine it's like a drone that just has like a, a little bag in it that sucks up and, and collects the air. Yeah, I think environmental microbiology, they have to find unique ways and, and very different ways of collecting samples in some of these areas. So, John, do you want to tell us a little bit about your next article? So the second article I am talking about, the paper is called Virulence Factors Perforate the Pathogen-Containing Vacuoles to Signal Ephrocytosis. What does that even mean? So it's intracellular bacteria use a sophisticated hack, quote-unquote, to evade host's immune system. Okay. This is found in cell host microbe, and uh, the author is Hiroshi et al., I hope I pronounced that correctly. And this is actually from UC Davis. So UC Davis has discovered a signaling mechanism allowing salmonella to evade death by the immune system. So salmonella infects macrophages and, in turn, they trigger the death of the cell. Uh, Next, salmonella then tricks the immune system to deliver the bacteria to another macrophage. But let me step back a little bit. We need to get into a little bit of background, I think, before going on. So this involves the innate immune system, the complement system, and a couple of immune cells. Oh, I hate the complement system. I know. That's the one that's uh, like labeled ill in numbers, but the numbers are not labeled in order. Right. So I'm not really going to go into the complement system. Because it's complicated. Yeah. That's what it should be called, the complicated system. There's over 50 proteins involved with the complement uh, pathways, and there's three main branches, but we're not going to get into that. (laughs) For layman's terms, it is part of the immune system, and it's a class of proteins that acts on pathogens in a variety of manners, depending on which pathway utilized. So it can kill the bacteria, it can actually recruit the immune cells to the bacteria, so on and so forth. And some of the immune cells involved are neutrophils, and these immune cells are recruited by the complement, and they go after bacteria and macrophages, which actively engulf microbes, and they are also part of the innate immune system. So macrophages are constantly going around scavenging, looking for anything bad in our body. So salmonella can survive in macrophages, and they live in a compartment or a vacuole within the cell. How long can they survive inside the macrophage? Forever? Indefinitely, I believe. They never specified. This allows the microbe to evade the rest of the immune system. They're just chilling in the cell. But macrophages only live for 30 days. So Salmonella needs to find a new place to live. And to find this new home, Salmonella has a virulence factor that creates holes both in the membrane that they're living in and in the macrophage. And this causes the macrophage to die. 
this is where a complement comes in. These holes that they created activates the complement system, which in turn attracts the neutrophils, and they actually engulf the dead macrophage. Who does? The neutrophils? Yeah. Neutrophils eat the macrophage. Yep. After the macrophage eat the bacteria. Right. After the bacteria poked holes in the, poked holes in the macrophage. Yeah. Okay. So you can kind of think of like a turducken, but on a <laughs> cellular level, that's kind of what it's like. <laughs> so yeah, they eat the macrophages through efferocytosis. And in turn, the macrophage corpse protects the bacteria from antimicrobial compounds that neutrophils make. These are... Can we just say microbes are the coolest thing in the world? Like, this is incredible. Yeah. It's terrible. Incredible. Yeah. I'm so impressed right now. It's weird. They're hiding in a dead thing and still surviving and chilling. And using that dead thing to protect them. Yeah. So they can find a new home that's alive. Right. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And neutrophils create things called reactive oxygen species. This is stuff like hydrogen peroxide is considered one of these chemicals. So it kills microbes. So they're they're being protected from this. And this mechanism not only has been found in salmonella, it's also been found in brucella species as well. Hmm. And this is interesting because science already knows of a method salmonella kills macrophages. It's called pyropatosis. And that's where the salmonella is secreting components of the flagella that they use to move around into the macrophage's cytoplasm. And this kills macrophages. But in doing so, it like ruptures the cell, ejecting salmonella into the outside environment so they can be detected by the immune system. So by utilizing ephrocytosis, they uh, subvert this and they just keep remaining in the macrophage and keep chilling. Living their best life. Yeah. Love it. And there's a, a little a little side note. So this was all done on mouse culture cells, and they used uh, Brucella abortus and Salmonella typhurium. That is super interesting, actually. And I think this is the mechanism, that how they survive in chickens, Salmonella. I mean, they have been few studies done, and they also brush, uh, I mean, roughly touch the topic that you just explained that how they survive inside the macrophages and then it's kind of inception story right salmonella and macrophage macrophage and neutrophils and cycle goes on <laughs> so like i don't know personally but is this how uh so i know salmonella is an enteric uh disease that we eat but do they also invade human macrophages i honestly don't know so different species actually i think they do uh, i think not typhimurium specifically but there are others who can actually live inside the human macrophages. And the study for humans, I think it's done also on the cell cultures because there's no other way or in mouse models. But I believe that the mouse models do not exactly represent the human immune system or the enteric immune system. Right. Every time you see a mouse uh, experiment, it's kind of a an asterisk you have to add there because it is possible. But you don't know for certain if it is going to happen in human. Right. Exactly. Also, the organs are different. For example, in, uh, uh, in mouse uh, uh, organs, cecum is the best place where salmonella loves it. Um, but in humans, that's not the case. It is mostly small intestine. Hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, it just kind of makes me think of, could we do a podcast just on mouse models versus human models and what the microbes, what the, the science tells versus what could be true? I think I would love that. And I 
I was indirectly associated with a study which actually compared this, uh -huh. the mouse models and the humans and their uh, microbiome. Maybe we could actually discuss it. I can fish out that paper. Yeah, that would be cool. I think we should try to do that in the near future. I think that's a, it's an important topic to discuss. I mean, when I was getting my master's, I was studying bile acids. And yeah, we had a mouse model, but the bile acid I was looking at is uh, toracolate, toracolic acid. And so that's found almost, that's almost all of mouse bile acids is taurine conjugated. But that's, that's only 25% of humans. So it's like, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a little, there's a little caveat there. It's like, is this, is this truly representative? Is it not representative? Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be a really cool uh, podcast to do. It's totally out of my wheelhouse, but I think between John and Disha, we could have a pretty good conversation and I'll just sit back and enjoy. <laughs> 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 All right. Moving on to our final article of Da Bomb for winter edition. Uh, so this is another one that is environmentally focused. So this is the transcriptome analysis of environmental pseudomonas isolates reveals mechanisms of biodegradation of naphthanic acid fraction compounds in oil sands tailings, which I hope is the most technical I have to get in the rest of this summary because, yeah, that is a little confusing. So this comes to us from some folks up in Canada, primarily from the British Columbia. So we have Parissa Chagunian, Stefan Philbot, Carrie Peru, John Heedley, Dana McMartin, Brian Gramlich, and Vikram Medita G. Yadif. So um, this one, uh, it may come to no surprise to anyone here. I hope that mining practices are actually not super good for the environment. They require a copious amount of water. Uh, and in turn, that water is often turned toxic in the process of mining. So one of the toxic elements that can be created through the mining process is naphthanic acid and when right now, there's not a lot of great ways to do any wastewater treatment on this water. And it's estimated that there are some 700 billion liters of this toxic water floating around. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that they have to contain this water, but there's always going to be leakage. There's always that potential that when it goes back into the world, it's going to cause a lot of issues. This is particularly toxic to aquatic fish. Um, which, again, is sort of at the bottom of the food chain, but it all kind of rounds up um, and can affect the whole environment rather quickly. So our heroes of this story is, of course, our microbial friends, particularly in today's story, Pseudomonas putida and Pseudomonas protogens. So these microbes have this superpower where they can actually make this waste, this wastewater less toxic. And when the microbes work together, they found that they completely detoxify the water after 30 days, which I thought was really cool because I love when microbes work together to make something beautiful. So from a methods point of view, this also has a lot of really neat and fascinating elements to it. They went beyond just profiling and identifying the microbes inside the wastewater and, and dove a little deeper trying to connect the different elements of this omic universe that we now live in. So they combined the genomics, which is understanding what the microbes are capable of, 
with the transcriptomics, which is understanding what the microbes are doing in a certain time point, with metabolomics, which is what the microbes are actually producing in the environment. So these are three different kind of sectors of the omic universe that we now live in. And most researchers, most research today is often pulling on one of these omic elements, usually genomics. Um, We talk about the microbiome where they're looking at metagenomics. But there are a few articles that are actually trying to pull in all these different aspects to get a more holistic view and understanding of the entire environment. So that's pretty neat. So by combining all of these methods, they're able to better understand not just who is there or what is happening, but to better understand what is the mechanism behind the superpower. So researchers looked at each pseudomonas on their own and compared this to behaviors to how the micro behaved when it was in the presence of the other. So they had Pseudomonas protogens on its own in wastewater, and then they had Pseudomonas putida on its own in wastewater, and then they did a one-to-one co-culture in the wastewater and looked at the different elements that came out of it. So just like us, I think this is also um, something that we can all sort of relate to, the microbes behave differently when in the presence of others than when they were by themselves. So if you think of any group project that you've ever been in back in your school days, you might remember that in a group project, there's always one person that just pulls enough weight to say that they're still part of the group, but really didn't pull their weight uh, to deserve the A that you really got them. This happened to me quite often. I mean, sometimes you are the person that is just pulling enough weight to, to get the A. Uh, but I think we've all been there. We can relate to that. And the same thing happens in the microbial world. So... When the micros are placed together to degrade the wastewater, Pseudomonas protogens was definitely pulling their weight. And Pseudomonas prutida, well, they did enough just to get by. So Pseudomonas protogens had 17 different pathways that were contributing to the wastewater degradation, whereas Pseudomonas putida was only found to have two pathways. So just enough. But what I also think is interesting is when they were both placed together, they still were better than Pseudomonas protogens was on its own. So Pseudomonas putida might be a bit of a freeloader, but they did enough to work to make the group project more successful than Pseudomonas protogens working on this task alone. The next element to this, so where this future or where can this go in the future once they understand the mechanism, is this concept known as microbial engineering, which I think is something we're also going to explore more in this podcast in the future. So this concept of microbial engineering is once we understand the mechanism and we understand how it works, we can then go in and try to harness that power ourselves and amplify it if need be. So if we amplify it, we can make the, the microbes, these pseudomonas species, maybe they can degrade this wastewater faster or, or degrade more wastewater than what was before. Uh, the other way we can do it is through synthetic biology or synbio, where we're actually creating the microbe with everything that we want and putting it in the wastewater to have these, this biodegradation superpower, which I think is a lot of interesting research that's going to come out of that in the near future. And, and maybe our, not our ticket out, but definitely helpful as climate change and sustainability issues continue to rise. I like how uh, this article hits on a couple of points that have becoming more and more present to me in overall sciences. Co-culturing is something that 
I think is still relatively new. Like, you know, science is always trying to look at one variable at a time, um, especially like, I don't know, like the microbiome, you're looking at one microbe at a time, but we've hit this like wall where you, you can only learn so much. And also microbes are going to act one way by themselves and then they're going to act completely different with other microbes. Also it talks about metabolomics, which I guess I was a little naive before. Like I thought that you can learn almost everything through transcriptomics and looking at the genome. But I've read a couple of papers, like there was one where they used a fungus and a pathogen to look at antimicrobials. And when they grew them together, they found that the fungus created four new antimicrobials that they hadn't seen in its genome. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. So I like this article because it's a marriage of those two. It's like showing, hey, we can't do any, can't be doing things one by one anymore because we're not getting the full picture. And even if we look at the DNA or the genes, we still don't know everything that it's going to produce. Yeah, I think I think that thinking of the silver bullet approach has come and gone. And it's really time to start thinking of everything very holistically, which is infinitely more challenging just to wrap your head around, never mind just to research it. But uh, I think as we turn more towards that focus, we will find new things that we never thought were possible. All right. Does anyone have anything else to share for today? I just really enjoyed the articles we covered today. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of cool things in there. Yes, that's true. And we discovered, uh, I mean, I, I think we discussed all different types of topics. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like to do with the bomb. It's just a little bit of everything. So no matter what you research, something sticks to you, but there's also a lot of new things to discover in the microbial world. Nothing it doesn't touch. It affects all assets of science. All assets of life, whether you're a researcher or not. I mean, not to get off topic, but what is it? There's there's some experiment claiming that tardigrades can survive like some sort of quantum physics experiment. Oh, yeah, the quantum distanglement of the tardigrade. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> that's, that's a messy <laughs> argument, not for today. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed listening and learned some fun new facts about the microbial world in which you live in. And if you like today's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and review anywhere you listen to our podcast. Also, check out our blog at microbiogales.com and also check out Microbytes. Until next time, bye! Bye! Bye-bye.